welcome to the Evoke Ag podcast, the show where we take a look at the ag tech and food innovations changing the future of farming. Hello and welcome to the Evoke Ag podcast. I'm your host, Steve Honor. Today, we take a close look at intangible assets. We find out what they are, how they're valued, and why companies with strong intangible assets have better weathered the COVID-19 economic storm. Back in 1975, intangible assets accounted for 17% of corporate value. Today, they account for 90%. So what impact is this having on the agribusiness sector, and how important is it for companies to safeguard these assets? In this discussion, we are joined by Michael Masterton, Managing Director of Everedge Assets, and Tim Hyde, CEO of Swan Systems. Facilitating the discussion is Massimo Gabuyo, Associate Professor of the University of Sydney's Business School. So without further delay, please enjoy this discussion. Welcome to Evocag, where we connect the global agri-food tech community. I'm Massimo Garbuglio, Associate Professor at the University of Sydney Business School, and today we are discussing intangible assets, what they are, how to value them, the risk, and what it means for the agri-food industry. Joining me today in the studio is Michael Masterson, Managing Director of Everage, and connecting via Zoom from Perth, Tim Hyde, CEO and Founding Director of Swan Systems, also joins us. My two guests today will be sharing a real-life viewpoint on the hidden value of intangible assets and strategies for businesses to drive innovation and growth. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me today. Michael, let's start with you. What are intangible assets? Great question. The the definition that we use of intangible assets is different to the classic accounting standard. Accountants really look at it as a way to bring items onto the balance sheet and essentially depreciate them over the time. We see intangibles as anything that's completely non-physical. So if it's a non-physical asset, in other words, it can generate revenue or it can be worth something to someone else, then it has value. And it's things like data, brand, systems, confidential information. It does fall into things like the traditional registered rights, like patents and trademarks. But where we see most of the value sitting in pretty much every company we deal with is sitting in things that typically are off balance sheet. They're not on the P&L, but it's actually what drives their ultimate margin and or their market share. That's interesting. That's a different definition from what we're used to. How do you help companies to identify their intangible assets? Yeah, it's actually not that hard. So the first thing you do is look at where the revenue or the margins are coming from and then start to understand what gives that company the ability to generate a better than their competitors or market margin and or market share. You then work backwards. And again, it's actually not that hard. It's the stuff that most people know. And we often see it defined as other things. So a lot of it comes down to definition. The reason we don't talk about IP, in case you're wondering, <laughs> um, is because the moment I say IP to a business owner or an investor, they go straight to patents. And unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, patents are typically quite a small intangible asset. They can be really, really valuable, but for the most part, that's not where the value is. 
So the other way of describing intangible assets or the ability to generate that margin and or market share is things like secret source, if I'm talking to a manufacturer, unfair edge, competitive advantage. Warren Buffett actually calls it an economic moat. In other words, it's what's going to stop everyone else being able to copy me and what's going to enable me to hang on to that margin and or that market share. Thank you. And Tim, Swan System is an amazing company. Do you want to start by giving us an overview of what it does? Thanks, Massimo. Uh, Swan Systems is um, a, a platform, an enterprise-grade platform, which is designed to help water users manage water and nutrition um, to optimise growth in the case of agriculture or turf quality in the case of schools. So we're enterprise software. We work across quite a few verticals, um, but it's mainly about managing water and nutrients. And how did you first become involved with Michael and Average, and why did you do that? Yeah, we, um, Oz Industry had um, asked Michael to come to Perth, where we're based, to uh, have a talk um, about managing intangible assets. And um, we actually missed that talk, and then we asked to be introduced to Michael to have a conversation. We thought it was quite applicable to what, what we're doing as a business, and from there we uh, struck up a conversation and then ended up doing some work with Everedge. How has this process helped you building business value and plan for the future? It, it's, been, it's been a really exciting process. I, I, I guess um, identifying intangible assets in your business is a, is a starting point. Um, when you identify them, then you can um, have the ability to, to work out what they are and how you can manage them and build a strategy around that for later. So in, the, in our case, we had intangible assets around our data, the data we create, um, our software, patents, brand, know-how and relationships. So we help sort of really identify and each component of our intangible asset value, build a strategy on how to manage it and how to manage it for competition, how to manage it for in case of an exit. So there's a whole heap of reasons that you want to manage that efficiently and it just helps put that all together. Thank you. And Michael, we know that in 1975, intangible assets accounted for 17% of company value. Today, they account for 90% of a company value. What's the reason of this increase? Yeah, well, what you saw is the 1975, you know, we were in a traditional society. We hadn't entered the digital age. So what you see happen in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, because there's two things that drove this. The first is the one that everyone is aware of. It's the digital companies, the Amazon, Googles, Facebooks, Instagrams, et cetera, coming online. But the second thing, and this is really relevant to Australian companies, is that we saw... US companies, because that's where that statistic comes from, offshoring their balance sheet to China, predominantly. In other words, they went from a high cost base to a low cost base. But here's the critical thing. What they did is they didn't just send over the tangible assets, the plant, the equipment, the machinery, but they also sent over the intangible assets. In other words, they sent over not just the what, but the how. And that's where the ultimate value is. And this is why you see the US and now Australia bringing back manufacturing onshore because they've realized that it's often very, very difficult and sometimes impossible to protect these assets once they leave your ability to control them. So now you see 90% of the value because the thing with intangible assets is that unlike tangibles, tangibles can't scale at exponential growth rates. Only intangible assets can. So the companies that are doing really well 
are those that are predominantly intangible assets. And coming back to our friend Warren Buffett, this is why Warren invests in companies that have strong economic moats, because he worked this out. Now, he, he doesn't call it intangibles, maybe he does, but this is what's ultimately driving companies' performance. So when you see companies doing better than their competitors, it's because they have better intangible assets, better knowledge, know-how, as Tim describes, you know, data, systems, processes, networks, relationships. It's all the stuff that, unfortunately, the accounting standards actually tell you to ignore. But actually, that's where all the value is. What about specifically for company in the agri-food sector? What are intangible assets that we often discount? Yeah, again, one of the ones that starts off as being actually worthless, um, like zero, is your brand. Um, and so we do quite a bit with companies getting their brand right because ultimately that's where all the value gets captured at the end. And the example we use here is Apple. You know, not quite an agri-food company, but um, you know, Apple's brand started off as being worth completely zero when the three people started Apple. And what you see is as they bring out products and services over time, it kind of ratchets up the brand over time. And ultimately your brand becomes your scorecard. And I'm going to talk you know, a little bit later about some of the risks we see around these intangible assets. But you know, again, if I look at Tim's business, you know, Tim's business is data, systems, processes, but it's ultimately being captured in the Swan Systems brand. So that when people say, hey, look, I need to get better efficiencies out of how to grow my food, hey, I'm going to call those guys at Swan Systems. Yep, that's a really interesting point because we know that Swan System has over 70 relationships with hardware and data providers. They go from Israel to Australia. They account for one third of his intangible assets. What are some of the key advantages and learning in valuing those relationships, Tim? I think it's, um, yeah, understand they are part of our business and part of our intangible assets. And, and like all intangible assets, build a strategy around managing, whether it's, um, you know, organising regular meetings or having some outcomes or um, putting some formalities around. It's just about managing those relationships. So ultimately our customers get the best value by us having um, a solid relationship that's in, the, in their advantage. Yeah, and I think, Tim, you know, one of the things that we talked about a lot when we're working with you is that, you know, as Drucker says, you can't manage what you don't know you have. And so the first thing, you know, as Tim alluded to before, is actually work out that these are even an asset. Because they're not written down typically anywhere, they're often ignored. The moment you start treating them as an asset, all of a sudden you start thinking about, well, who needs to know that information? And it, it changes your entire psyche um, around how to manage these. And we've just seen, Tim, one of our, one of our other clients, Rhino Rack, now has the first chief intangible asset officer. So, uh, mate, there's, uh, there's a new metric for you. Oh, wow. Interesting. Michael, what was unique about this project with, uh, with Tim? Um, apart from the 43 degree day that I happened to meet Tim on, which means I will never forget meeting Tim, Tim and the team. Um, I think for us, you know, I remember when I first met Tim, the challenge for us is often working out what is the secret sauce? What makes these guys special? And when I saw the impact that Tim's business was having on the environment and the ability, you know, one of our greatest assets, you know, is, is everyone keeps telling us is going to be water. And, you know, Swan's ability to use, you know, around 20% less water to actually deliver better yield rates is incredible. And I remember one of the, the, the stories that uh, one of Tim's team told me, which is, you know, you often see sprinklers going on in, you know, parks and fields when it's raining. 
Yep. I mean, one of the key things Swan does is stop that. I mean, apart from everything else, that alone, I mean, I think it's all of our bugbear. How did you go about identifying those specific instances in which uh, there was intangible assets and values to look after? Yeah, one of the things we do is we get we get our clients talking about their business. And as, as they're talking, what we're hearing is often the things that other people would want to steal. In other words, whilst it might be business as usual to say Swan or one of our other clients, it's really about what is giving them that competitive advantage. In other words, why are people choosing them as that as that provider, that partner. And then if we, if, if we were one of their competitors, how would we obtain those assets? Would we hire out their management team? Would we potentially try and obtain them through nefarious means, you know, particularly outside of Australia? Um, so these are all the things that, again, a lot of people don't know. And it's that old saying, you can't unring the bell. And unfortunately with intangibles, often when they go, you can't get them back. But 99% of all the theft of intangible assets we find is inadvertent. It's because Bob, no one ever told Bob or Mary when they left that particular company that they had access to really valuable information or algorithms or data or knowledge or know-how. They go to the new employer and of course they start using it and of course it, it decimates the, the former employer. Michael, during the COVID environment, what are the benefits of valuing intangible assets? Yeah, I think it's been really interesting. If you look at the companies that have done well in COVID, they're the ones that actually have strong intangible assets. I mean, this was a theory that I remember I was lucky enough to um, present, be the keynote at Gartner last year. And they had four of the world's top you know, economists talking about you know, that they thought there was going to be a correction coming. Now, no one knew it was going to be COVID. But you know, the market kept going up and up and up and up. And what was interesting is that all four of them were actually bears. In other words, they saw the markets going down. And they heard my presentation and they came up to me. I remember seeing them in the corner and they said, look, we've just been talking. We actually think you've identified what the disconnect is. And that is that tangible asset orientated companies are not going to do so well because they operate in highly liquid markets. Intangible asset companies operate in highly illiquid markets and they can pivot and move a lot faster. And we've seen this with the digital companies. You know, digital companies have traditionally done incredibly well out of COVID. Um, so what, yeah, so what you find is that again, if you've got a predominance of intangible assets that in particular you've identified and you're managing as an asset, then you're much more likely to sweat that asset and actually do better out of it. So. Better understanding intangible assets is really valuable in good times. It's even better in uh, difficult times. Yeah, and uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, we are seeing a tsunami of companies that are that are probably going to hit the wall. And the one thing I can tell you about intangibles is that they're normally the first asset to dissipate when a company goes into a negative event. And it's not that the code disappears, but often the company hasn't, for example, you know, codified you know, the developer notes around the code. So when the, de the development team leave and the company goes to try and sell its code or the receiver or the liquidator does, then they don't know how to value it. Um, and what's interesting is that unfortunately we see that the insolvency and receivership industries only focus on the tangibles. Um, and we saw this, you know, to use a, you know, one of the famous Australian examples, when Dick Smith went under, Kogan bought the entire Dick Smith database for $5,000. Now, we did just a, you know, a back of an envelope valuation. You could have added easily one, probably two zeros to that number. So again, because Dick Smith weren't treating it as an asset, they didn't know it was an asset, Kogan definitely knew it was an asset and has done incredibly well out of it. Absolutely. Tim, back to you. 
What tips do you have for businesses and startups in the agri-food space? I, I think um, be, be open and, and mindful that you are creating value with a lot of the data you're collecting and a lot of the processes in place. And, and I think, um, you know, working with the, for our, us working with a company like EverEdge gave us that appreciation of what we, what we were building. So I think it's just being open-minded about it and, and have a view that you don't really know you don't know until you sort of get some expertise and some advice in that space. And specifically, why should startups consider valuing intangible assets? I think it's hard to put a value on them at an early stage. I think the, the idea is to build value over time, but certainly have an appreciation that you are creating value for your business over time would be our, my comment there. Michael, what tips do you have? Often the, the challenge we find from investors, because you know, we sit either for, for the company or, or for the investor side, and the investors nearly always say to us, we really like these guys, you know, male or female. We like what they're doing, but we just don't know what we're investing in. You know, there's no balance sheet. They may be pre-revenue or scaling up in revenue. How do you explain to us where the value is? And, and really, there's, there's three, three facets of that. The first is, look, the numbers are important. You can't always ignore the numbers. But in a scaling up com- company, they're less important. Second is looking at, well, what's the quality of the assets? In other words, have they been well protected and managed, et cetera? And then the third is, what are some of the comparable or market transactions around this? And then it's a matter of triangulating all three to work out where the value is to a prospective buyer. It's not necessarily what it's worth to the seller. It's what it's worth to the buyer. And this is where we see, unfortunately, the traditional approach to valuation, just getting it wrong. Um, because, you know, for example, if, if you're a valuer and you don't know how to read, for example, a patent, well, you can't value that patent. You know, the same way I couldn't value, you know, a horse. Um, so the word value and valuation and valuer are unfortunately quite broad. And these are very bespoke assets. And again, 99% of the time, the challenge is finding who's the right buyer for that asset. Once you find the right buyer, then it's a matter of explaining to the buyer also, why is it worth this amount to them? And then normally you find investment typically follows. You know, people like, you know, won't pay for what they don't understand. Thanks for listening to the Evoke Ag podcast, which is proudly brought to you by AgriFutures. For further information, head to our website, evokeag.com, or you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Until next time, have a great day.